Today's episode features a writer whose work has been the target of aspiring book banners in my home turf of Putnam County, New York. And in anticipation of this conversation, I tried reaching out to a man leading the Get These Books Out of Our Schools movement to seek his insight and opinions. I asked him a question over Facebook, and he responded thusly, Impressive you picked a book that was so very one-sided and anti-police. Thank you for your true colors. How about we speak the truth? You know the truth can go a long way. Your support of the books in this school, you twisted, sick, demented pedophile. And to add a little spice to conversation, you absolutely suck. The craziest part of this guy? This man who wants to be in charge of a high school's literary offerings? He doesn't understand your Y-O-U-R versus your Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Rita Williams Garcia, the New York Times bestselling author of novels for young adults and middle grade readers. And I recently read Rita's book, One Crazy Summer, after a bunch of parents in my home turf of Putnam County, New York, tried to have it banned from schools. This is episode number 247. Let's... Sing some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Okay, Rita. First of all, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me here. I really appreciate it. As I sit in my my closet, I am from a very small town called Mayopack, New York, which is about an hour north of the city. I grew up there. I moved when I was eighteen. I still have many friends there. It's one of those places where if you get older and you're even moderate to liberal you lose a lot of friends on Facebook over the years because there's, there's a lot of Obama was a Kenyan Muslim and MAGA. And recently there's been a woman in the area who has called for more. She's, she's, you know, the, the requisite anti CRT woman, you know, and showing up at the school boards. And I recently saw on Facebook that she was calling for the banning of one crazy summer by <laughs> Some author I've never heard of, some hack from Queens named Rita Williams Garcia. And I bought the book and loved the book, like loved the book. And I kept saying to my wife, the idea that anybody would want to ban this book. I kept saying to her, I would be like, this is ridiculous. This is so stupid. This is the dumbest. What? This is the dumbest thing ever. I'm just, I've never had a book that was people called for it to be banned. And I guess I just want to ask you a big, fat, broad question. Like what? What does that feel like? Well, geez. Um, okay. Okay. Well, I you got my initial reaction when when you emailed me. Um, I just laughed and I could not stop laughing. I just it just tickles me because uh, when they come for one crazy summer, uh, the first thing that I know is that they have not read the book and that if they have read the book and still insist on it being banned, um, then I worry about their souls. And I, I think a lot about like what, what motivation is. I, I, I basically know what that is. Um, it concerns me that the first, the first thought is to ban the book because it has um, content that you're unfamiliar with or that, causes your heart to pitter patter uh, for, for whatever personal or societal fears you might have. Um, but for, for me, I, I, 
I, I think it's because I am a fighter, um, because I do like to punch, um, because I do like give and take between two people. I always think that it's a conversation. And so I don't understand the knee-jerk, fearful reaction to remove. Um, challenge is fine, because I hope that means there's going to be discussion. But remove, ban, what are you afraid of? You know, what are you afraid of? <laughs> I have this picture in my head of, of people cowering because of the three little girls going to Oakland and learning something about the Black Panther movement. Oh my God. You know, for me, it's ridiculous, but then I have to kind of step out of myself and also be a warrior for the books that are out there that are being um, challenged or banned in different ways. Uh, there's many ways to ban a book. There's many ways to make sure that a book does not see the light of day. Trust me, I know about that because I've written uh, that kind of book. I wrote a book called No Laughter Here, and it was a book that dealt with female genital mutilation. And it's a story about two 10-year-old girls. So no, this is not a high school book, you know, um, where we can maybe have a little bit more of a discussion about uh, sexual organs, um, genitalia, body parts, but it's about two 10-year-old girls. And, um, and that's what the story is. It's about two friends. One girl is, is irreparably changed. And her friend is trying to understand why is she different? This is the thing about stories. They are always about the character. It's the things that happen, they do happen, but it's all, it always, if it's a book of any literary value, it is about the person. And so why do you object to the experience of of people, of what children go through, of what children are exposed to. Because we are a very um, a multicultural society, we're moving more toward that. We are now being exposed or we know more about uh, other cultures. And so you're sharing a classroom with kids from different countries or from um, who practice different different religions or have different home cultures and values. And so that makes you curious. It also makes you um, maybe even more sensitive toward their needs. And what better uh, place than a book to really walk you through what someone else might be going through? I think it's funny and weird how the people always calling for books to be banned don't actually get it. Like, um, Again, I grew up in this very sheltered town. And when I was a senior in high school, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And 30 some years later, I've yet to join the Nation of Islam. Just because you read a book that delves into the Black Panthers or delves into transgender issues or doesn't mean you are going to. Oh, it's not, it's not a how to manual. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's uh, that's one of the things that um, I wish others would give or outsiders would give children's literature a lot more credit. The, the books are written so well. They are literature first, they're story first, and th they give educators room to teach, um, to explore different parts of language, 
um, subjects and just a whole host of um, topics that can be covered and activities. But uh, these are opportunities for children to kind of walk into different situations, look around and see, and then have discussion or some activity, um, ask questions. I think that's the main thing, the asking questions. And then maybe moving on to something else. Um, oh, this sparked an interest in that, or eh, you know, not so interested in that. You know, kids have their own, um, they have their own interests, their own opinions. They ask really great questions and we don't give them enough credit. We think that, oh my goodness, because they are now exposed to it, oh, they will catch the LGBTQ-ism uh, uh, plus and all the pluses, um, you know, uh, kids are who they are. And if it helps them to understand someone uh, in their classroom or someone in their neighborhood or uh, or just have an understanding, a little bit more understanding of, of who is my neighbor in the world, then why not? Is this the first uh, taste of attempted banning you've had in your career or have you had a, a, a bunch of these moments? Um, I've had moments that I didn't know, even know I was having. Um, and, and that's kind of how it works with children's books. Um, sometimes what happens is that it might happen at the bookseller level where they might say, well, I don't think we can use books like this. I don't think this topic will go over. Um, sometimes it's a regional thing. Oh, the kids in, I used to hear this a lot when I was first trying to break in in the 80s, in the early 80s. Oh, I don't think the kids in Kansas are going to understand uh, what this urban life is about. You know, I don't think they can relate to that. Um, well, give them the window so they can look and see, and you would be surprised what the kids in Kansas are all about. A colleague of mine, Co Booth, had written the, uh, a book, uh, Tyrell, which was a New York Times bestseller and, and book of the year. And so her editor, David Levithan, the great David Levithan, had to get on, uh, get on the phone and actually call booksellers and tell them, yes, your kids will like these books. And guess what? Yes, those kids still like uh, still like that book. That book is still around. It's it's well over ten years, I I believe, and it's doing well. You know, it's that someone has to kind of break their own stereotype, their own ideas. They have to allow um, for other ideas to come in and um, and be surprised. I mean, I had to learn the hard way. What? I'm not just writing for Black girls? What? You know, that that was my mission. I was going to write these books about Black girls, and it wasn't going to be about Black girls who are out there to save the world and fight racism and blah, blah, blah. These are going to be just girls in their own environment, just trying to, you know, um, struggle with their own lives. And in those early days, it was kind of hard. And, um, and people would say, you know, why do we need this book? Because she's not a good role model. Um, have you looked outside the window lately? Kids need books about kids involved in struggle. Do you find that when you are thinking up ideas, all right, like just, just to break down, One Crazy Summer is the story of these three young girls and they're growing up in New York and they spend the summer in Oakland with their mother. And lo and behold, their mother is a member of the Black Panthers and the girls get involved and they find this, this sort of really wonderful group of people and it's a whole journey and it's, it's a great, it's lovely, like lovely times a thousand lovely. And I was reading it as a 49 year old white guy in California 
never once thinking this is a quote unquote black book. Yeah, I would never think like this black. it's just a book. I'm enjoying this book. It's really good. The characters are good. Blah, blah, blah. When you are writing these books, are you writing it for a quote, like in your head, are you writing it for a quote unquote black audience? Okay. Back in 1980, when I was uh, first on a typewriter typing my little stories out, uh, yeah, you know, that was in my head, like only because uh, when I went to the library to find a book for a group of girls that I was mentoring while I was in college, um, high school girls, I could not find a single book about a young black girl. So back then, yes, in my head, I am writing a black, blackity, black, black book for some black girls. And if you can't understand it, that's your issue. My world is real. Their world is real. They need validation. So that's where that's where I began. Um, and then, you know, I got more and more into just simply the craft of telling a good story. And I can't be anything else other than who I am and what I am. And so I bring that into my storytelling, not in all, but but pretty much. And so um, a story like uh, One Crazy Summer is very much entrenched in um, 1960s Black culture, Black family culture in uh, some very traditional ways. So there's so many things that someone within um, and especially uh, of a certain age group can identify with immediately. But a story has to be a story. It has to have characters that reach out to you in certain ways um, that you might not agree with, but you can feel how real they are. And so that's what I always strive for is that telling the story first and then bringing all to it that makes it that um, that fills in those details and makes it real. And then the kids who or whoever is reading relates to it on their own plane, on their own, you know, from from where they come from. And I think that's just the beauty of a book. It's not it is not a tool of indoctrination. <laughs> One thing I find really fascinating, um, like when I was growing up in my little podunk town, a friend of mine introduced me to the music of Public Enemy. Right. And again, white kids, small, rural, conservative, listening to Public Enemy. I, I had the chance to talk to Chuck D about this not that long ago, the lead guy from Public Enemy. Yeah. How I know his goal at the time wasn't really like I'm sure his first priority wasn't to educate white kids about black culture like that, that can't possibly be his first goal. But I think the role that Public Enemy played in enlightening white people to the struggle, you know, fight the power and black right. in the hour of chaos and these songs. And it seems like a really great offshoot of work. Like you're Rita and you're writing these books and your first thought is I'm writing for black kids who don't have characters they can relate to. But I've got to think through the years, you've really seen the offshoot of white parents, white kids being like, holy shit, I didn't even know this was a thing. And you have enlightened me. You know, that's the wonderful, uh, the wonder of email. You get those letters. Um, I, I get them. I, I do get them every day. And they are from parents of all um, races, 
um, ethnicities. Uh, the book has so many translations. So I get a lot of letters and I try to answer each one. Um, it's, it, it does get hard, but um, I hear from I hear from parents who are just amazed about the sharing opportunity that the book lends. And then they learn about a little bit about a history that uh, does not really get its mention in um, in either Black history or um, American history. How many of us talk about uh, the breakfast programs during uh, Black History Month and so forth? So they get a chance to um, to have those discussions and to become a little bit more enlightened and to also kind of relate things to, well, what is happening? What's going on today? See, one of the really, uh, one of the uh, things that happened um, with a pandemic is that now suddenly parents became educators. And while the pandemic was going on, you know, we had uh, all of these tragedies of injustice and, and murders and, you know, killings of Black people. And so because those injustices have, you know, they, they just really rose to a boiling point, parents uh, were desperate to have discussions with their uh, children. And what better opportunity to have a discussion than by having a book that has appropriate age characters who think appropriate age thoughts. And then you can start to relate some of the things that are happening out in the real world. And in that way, you're both getting that opportunity to share. Books let you really step in and really feel from inside of the character's heart and their eyes. I once had a older white man come up to me and say, you know, um, I've been a racist all my life and I still am, but damn it, I love your book. And I read it with my biracial granddaughter. Wow. And he went away cursing, damn it. <laughs> I don't even know what the response to that is if you're you. Uh, thank you, I guess. I'm getting as much from my readers as they are getting from me. I'm, they are really helping me to grow um, in so many ways. And, and without that growth, I would not have been able to have written my latest book, which was um, A Sitting in St. James. And um, I said in the beginning, because I was mentoring girls who were 15 and, and could barely read and were turned off from reading, I would never write about slavery. We ain't writing about no slavery. We ain't going way back there. We're moving forward. We're talking about what's going on here and now. So that was always my point of view. And then I was pushed to write this book uh, that takes place in 1860, Louisiana. I had a relationship with my grandmother who was raised by her great-grandmother who was a slave and a Civil War widow. So um, you would think that I would tell the story from my ancestral point of view. Not only did I step outside of myself and my own background, I, uh, you know, uh, this story is really looks into the lives of these white slaveholding white Creoles, uh, Louisiana. Well, one is French, and and then the offspring are Creole. That's that's another story. And when I say Creole, I mean white white Catholic descendants of Europeans of um, uh, be, uh, prior to the Louisiana Purchase. Anyway, um, so uh, so I am right. So I have written this book about um, about this 
family and they are struggling to keep their plantation afloat. Well, the, the son, who is the master of the plantation, is struggling to keep the plantation afloat. Um, his, his mother still um, sees herself as kind of a petty offshoot of royalty, of French royalty. And so, um, so she disdains everything American because we are classless, because Americans are classless. Um, and um, uh, don't, um, uh, it's an insult to her to, um, to say that she is white. Uh, well, of course I'm white. You know, it's the French blood, uh, you know, for her, that's important. So all that to say is that um, because I got the opportunity to, to travel, um, throughout the country and to see people and to see lives and to see different points of view, I thought, okay, I know I'm going to do something with this, uh, but it really, it really took a lot of kicks in the pants um, and, and some dreams in, uh, for me to, to uh, kind of get this story, to get that story moving. Um, and um, uh, there are times that you root for these people and then you remember, oh, you know, they also do monstrous things. Um, and so um, uh, with that, you know, I'm just really hoping to have a discussion that people are open to having a discussion uh, about the inheritance of slavery, which is privilege and racism. Before we continue with Two Writers Thinking Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett. And I'm noticing all you do these days is eat freeze-dried apples and wear throwback jerseys from RoyalRetros.com, king of the throwback sports merchandise. I cannot lie, Papa. It is true. I love freeze-dried apples and Royal Retros jerseys. I obviously get the jerseys because Royal Retros makes awesome stuff from all different leagues, eras, sports. But freeze-dried apples? Much like Mike Rozier and Archie Griffin in the 1985 Jacksonville Bulls backfield, the apples make for a perfect pairing with Royal Retros clothing. I don't understand. Of course you wouldn't. You're a cantaloupe guy. I feel like it's a thing now in America to say we need to have a discussion, right? Yes. We need to have a national discussion about January 6th. We need to have a national discussion about reparations. We need to have a national discussion about anti-Semitism. We need, and we never do. We never have national. I don't even know if there is a such thing as an actual national discussion. Is there? Yeah. Um, I think town halls. I think maybe we need to get back to um, town halls and book clubs. I, I believe in the book club. I truly do. Because you are now talking about things that are truths that are happening inside of a book. So you have enough distance that you're not as de self-defensive, but um, you can communicate ideas um, that you might hold or that you have questions about or that you disagree with. And so I, I truly believe that that book clubs can really give us an, uh, more of an opportunity to kind of exchange without um, having to shout each other down. I know that will happen, but having to shout each other down and not hear each other. National discussion is hard. I think you can do things locally. I'm a great believer in a kind of local grassroots outreach. It, it takes people who are interested though. Um, like a place to start would be the, uh, the people who, who object to, to books. Are you open to discussion? Wait, I can answer for them. No. And the thing that, wait, it really actually upsets me because this is what I, I always think this, like um, 
the woman I, I alluded to who wants to ban your book. Yes. She's also, you know, accusing teachers in the school district of this and teachers of that. And, and it's like, did you arrange a conference with the teachers? Did you try to sit down with the superintendent? Did you try to sit down with the principal? And it's always the same. No. Did you call the author whose book you wanted to ban? You know, she replies to emails. Why, why don't you reach out to her and ask her about her book? Well, I can't do that because we all need to be loud and we need to be aggressive. And it's just, yeah. there's no yeah. nuance left in this society at all. Oh yeah. It's so true. I did a, I did a little digging on you. Uh, thanks um, for the links. Um, so, um, so you are from the Carmel district. Mail pack and Carmore next to each other. So sure. oh, next to each other. Okay. So, um, so apparently there's a book rash book banning rash going around up in those parts because I was invited to a uh, Carmel school district uh, to talk about um, one, uh, one crazy summer. And then um, there was a, there was fear uh, that they would have to rescind the invitation. That happens a lot. So I said, why don't I just do a meeting, a virtual meeting for the parents and they can ask me questions. I can go through the presentation Whatever you find object, objectionable in the presentation, you know, we can deal with that. And then the next thing I knew, I was invited to the school to do my to do my uh, presentation for the kids, and um, the parents lost interest. Did you go? I had to do it virtually. I did the uh, presentation and uh, the radicalizations of the students uh, did not happen. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, parents have to trust their own home training a lot. Um, either you're teaching your children as you want them to be taught um, or you're not. But my parents they made their values very clear to my sister, brother, and I. And so we were to walk out into the world with their values, uh, but with the understanding that we were going to question things, test things, and then learn the lessons the, the long, hard way. The woman in Carmel who was leading the book banning movement and the CRT, anti-CRT, whatever movement. Yes. I recently saw her in an interview where she was asked whether it's okay to teach slavery about slavery. And she said, of course it is, but it's also important to remember that whites helped free the slaves. And I'm like, there's no hope for you. There's just, <laughs> there's just no hope for you. <laughs> it's over. But, she, but you know what? She is exactly who should be in discussion, but it, it really should be. Um, it can't be screaming and, and yelling and putting people down. It has to be idea, you know, spy versus spy, idea versus idea. You know, it's it's got to be that so that um, you can hear where I'm coming from. I can see why the screws are loose over there. Um, you know? <laughs> wait, wait, Rita, I want to make my point to you. I think it's really important that when we teach slavery, we remind kids that whites helped free the slave. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, I didn't realize okay, that. See, see I'm, I'm, I'm going to be bad. I'm going to laugh all the way through it, which is, you know, there are folks who um, who really fight well on um, on these subjects amongst my colleagues. Um, and they are so eloquent and well-spoken um, and passionate and, and, and have all the logic. My handle on uh, Twitter is one crazy Rita. It's not just that I'm crazy. I think it, it has a lot to do with my, I'm an ecclesiast at, 
at heart. Um, everything is meaningless. Yes, we all strive to uh, toward a better world, but at the end of it all, we're all going, I, I don't mean to be morbid, but we're all going to go to dust. So the things that you think are so important, what does it mean if it's not serving the greater good, if it's not serving humanity? You're going way too deep for a sports writer. I'm just a sports writer. I don't know. <laughs> what? What, is this? what? Are you kidding me? No, some of the best writing is sports writing because the stories are so passionate and are relatable. And, and then they do go deep. I'm not saying everyone <laughs> in sports is dumb. I'm just saying I'm dumb. Not uh, <laughs> Writing for a YA audience primarily. Is it ever frustrating? Like, are there ever times where you just want to drop a motherfucker in a book or... You want to get really, really serious to a level that maybe a 13-year-old can't get that serious or shouldn't get that serious. Is there, Are there restraints to being a YA author? Oh, sure there are. Sure there are. I, that was the first thing that I learned uh, because when I wrote my first book, Blue Tights, it didn't occur to me to hold anything back. And so, uh, oh, so this is why they won't let me in. This is why they're not publishing me. You know, I, I believed uh, write the way kids actually speak versus how they don't speak. And so, so there were curses in the book and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. And um, there is, a, there, oh, there is an actual coat hanger abortion in that book. I did not have a sense of taboo or, oh, you can't go there. To me, I always felt like, okay, uh, I want to write about this life and all of the and the things that do happen in it. And so I don't censor myself. I don't have that natural sense of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but after years and years of being edited, now, unfortunately, I do. Now I have that in me. Why, and unfortunately? Because when I was writing um, as a apprentice writer, as someone breaking in, um, I simply wrote and I didn't question myself because I, I always believed that I led with the truth. If I was writing it, it was because I seen it somewhere or it's evident in, um, in what I see uh, in the world. I'm not making something up. I'm just really talking about things that do go on. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, that just, that was just um, my, my key uh, to writing. So, um, but now, unfortunately, I am unaware that there are gatekeepers that do, do decide which books um, can make it into the classroom. And, and I'm not talking about the parents. I'm talking about um, everything from booksellers to um, those who buy books for, uh, for lib libraries, um, people who review books and all of that. I, I, I was never really aware of the machinery of the industry. And, um, and it's a, it's a, for me, it's a terrible thing to, to know. Um, I'm a better writer than I was 40, 30 years ago. And so I negotiate really, I'm really negotiating with myself. Um, I never, even though the, the topics that I do uh, take on um, might seem heady or, or rather heavy, um, I never really think of it that way. What usually happens is that all of these things are going on in the world, 
um, every kind of horrible or whatever uh, thing that that children can um, can deal with is going on in the world. And then someone steps forward, a character, a voice steps forward. And I began I began to understand it from that character's point of view. And so then that's what I begin to pursue. And I become their advocate and I don't let them be little adults. I don't let them um, have concerns that they would not ordinarily have. Why, uh, you know, why would I do that? Um, That would be, that would be false. Um, I am judicious about bringing in um, uh, learned um, knowledgeable adults. I do believe that adults have a place, have their place in children's books and in YA books, but it's all, the book always belongs to the reader. Um, and so in that way, it belongs to that YA character with exception to a sitting in St. James is very much a story that is um, kind of powered by an 80 year old woman. It's just that her whims affect the lives of the next generation, um, the younger generations. Um, but but yeah, I, I do get very frustrated um, during the writing at times because I feel like I can't say what I what I need to say. Um, uh, yeah, my 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 longtime and really only editor uh, Rosemary Brosnan at uh, Quill Tree Bro- uh, Books. You know, we we have walked through these books together for decades. And, um, and every once in a while, there is something there. And, you know, and she'll say, Rita, you know, I really want you to think long and hard about using this terminology. And a lot of times she is right. For example, in my second novel, Fast Talk on a Slow Track, the boys, the uh, two teenage boys, they're like 17 years old. They're they're out uh, at a club doing you know, stuff, whatever. And um, a boy makes another makes a pass at um, the other boy, and so I, he calls him a fag, you know. And that was where Rosemary's like, oh, you know, please rethink this. And to me, you see, I am coming out of my culture. I'm coming out of a culture where, of course, there's LGBTQ plus in Black communities and families and and everywhere you look. Uh, But the attitude toward that has always not been tolerant. So so this story would kind of reflect that in that way. She's right for the sake of humanity, if you will, for how we treat each other, if you will. The uh, the truth of the character would have said fag, you know, would have said something derogatory at that moment. Right. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of you're trying to straddle the fence. You're trying to tell the truth, the truth of the character, but you also have to have some responsibility. And so and it's becoming even more and more tricky as you go along. I I noticed that uh, people are being um, dragged because they might have an opinion that is not the socially correct opinion or that they slip and they might use the wrong pronoun continuously. And so, uh, so that can be seen as being offensive or they don't understand, they don't understand they just don't understand or believe. And so that's a difference in 
that difference of belief can possibly do harm to a people, to a group of people. So it's all gets very, very complicated. You know, it's funny as I, as I get older, like I remember um, when I was growing up, my grandparents, they would, you know, you'd every now and then, I think they would use maybe the word colored to describe a black right. person. And you'd be like, grandma, you can't say color, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And as I get older, I realize in a weird way that you have to be patient with people that they grew up in the 1930s. My grandma was a German immigrant who never met a black person until she came to America. She wasn't necessarily being racist and saying colored. It's the word she knew. And, and people who struggle nowadays with pronouns um, and yeah. on, you can get killed on social media for that. And you're just learning as you go along in this world. And sometimes people are just trying to figure it out. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're being racist or homophobic or whatever. Right. They're just trying to figure the damn thing out because time moves and change and things change. Exactly. Um, a, a teacher wrote to me and said, oh, you know, you have the book, ne you have the word Negro in One Crazy Summer, and it's upsetting uh, the kids in, in the classroom. So I wrote that and, um, and I explained the evolution of what African-Americans have been called and what we are calling ourselves now. And then I pointed to to um, a speech by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, but also um, poems by um, Langston Hughes, um, just to show that, that, you know, this is what this term meant during this period. Um, and this is how we use it now. Uh, the song, James Brown song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, you could not have sung that song in 1960, but there it was in 1968, and it became an anthem. And it um, it had it was fighting against centuries of negative imagery of black and to be black, not only as people saw us, but as we saw ourselves. So you know, have that conversation. That's why you know I always I do try to make myself available. I can't answer every letter but I try to make myself available because there are a lot of questions. And um, I, I like the fact that I'm old enough to have seen a lot of these things, a lot of these changes. I, I mean, I've lived through so many changes. I was a dancer. I used to hold hands with a, a gay um, classmate of mine to keep him from getting beat up as we walked down a block together. It's a shame that needed that kind of cover but that's where we were, you know. I was going to say, if you uh, if you ended up going to Carmel, New York, I would have walked with you and held your hand to make sure you were safe. <laughs> uh, don't worry. I got my jab, got my right, got my hook, got my upper. Ferocious. And I can slip. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you a final question, because I feel like it is the it's the elephant in the room. You are afraid to fly and you don't like flying. Do you have a moment in your life where you were convinced you were going to die in a plane crash? There are quite a few. Here's my favorite one. So I was in Jamaica with a crew of friends and um, I was sitting next to these white kids and they had like um, all kinds of piercings and tats and, and God is dead and all of that all um, scribed over them. And, and I just kind of look and I go, eh, kids, you know, so the plane is like shaking. Then it's like throwing us around. That thing is like going crazy. I do my rosary and you have to imagine that I'm hitting my thigh, but I, I'm going 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed for thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Hail Mary, full of grace. So I'm going on and on and on, you know, because we are getting ready to die. Hail Mary, full of grace. Okay. So then before I know it, the two white anarchists, they're, do, they're doing it with me. Hail Mary, full of oh grace, the Lord is with thee. among women. And we're getting into full like punch mode and everything. And then the plane just calms down. And then we both go like, like peace <laughs> and going about our business. But yeah, it was, we were getting thrown around up there. And I just knew like, oh, this is it. Man, you just convinced a, uh, a G- agnostic Jew in California to maybe get some, ro- <laughs> some rosaries. <in> his- <laughs> Take care of himself. Um, well, listen, I, um, I love your book. I will read more of your books. On behalf of the exiled Putnam County Society of America, I apologize for the idiocy. Oh, don't, don't, don't. You don't seem don't. bothered by it, so I won't be bothered by it either. Yeah, you know what? We're in uh, different Americas, and we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that. And we have to hear each other. Might not like what you have to say. Oh, I definitely won't, but I want to hear it anyway. Whenever my African-American friends are like, White people, I'm always like, don't look at me. I'm a, I'm a liberal Jew from New York. Do not throw me in there, all right? I'm with you. I'm, with you. I'm just saying. You know. um, well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. Seriously, I really, really, really appreciate it. You are so welcome, and thank you so much. I want to thank today's guest, Rita Williams-Garcia, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Rita on Twitter at OneCrazyRita and visit her website at www.ritawg.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Also, check out my free weekly writing substack at perlman.substack.com. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.